This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Rout. And today I'm talking to Helen Beaglehole about her story of the settlement of the Marlborough Sounds. And Ruth catches up with Wilma Laren, a longtime stalwart of the Italian program here on Plains FM. And she's written a story of her life and times here in New Zealand. Wilma Giordani Lauren spent her first half of her life growing up in Italy and she then she came to New Zealand and she is in Christchurch. She left us and went up to Auckland when you sold the uh, winery and vineyard and it's so lovely. I can't believe you're here again. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Ruth, for having me. It's so good to be behind the microphone again. <laughs> it certainly is, especially people from Plains all remember you, I'm sure. You um, grew up in Italy. You gained a degree in maths and you were teaching while moonlighting with feminist theatre. I'd love to talk about that sometime. And then... Um, life in Japan and Kenya, marriage, a daughter in 1996, and uh, time um, for Christchurch. How did that come? You came to Christchurch. You came through New Zealand, from the North Island, but why did you decide to stop where you did in Kashmir Chase? Look, we were looking for an adventure. We were in our 40s, living near Milan, uh, with a little daughter, because I had her uh, quite late by choice. And so we said, uh, let's go and have a look at this New Zealand they say so much about. So we landed in Auckland and travelled all through the North Island, um, Wellington, and then uh, down south to Christchurch. And when we arrived in Christchurch, all the three of us, for a strange reason, we felt at home. We said, this is the place. We didn't go further south. We stopped here and started looking around for any house, what was the real estate market here. And already on that occasion, that exploratory trip, we were shown this property in Christchurch on the southern part, just at the foot of the Port Hills, but really in town, 10 minutes from yes. Cathedral Square, uh, nine hectares. And it was on the market. It had been on the market for a good year. It couldn't sell. It was too small for a farm, too big for a lifestyle block. And we said, this is perfect. <laughs> Let's get it. And you loved the house. We loved the house because it is a, a Mediterranean-style villa, typical. So we went back to Italy. We applied for residency on the points scheme. We got our residency. And then we came back, bought the house, and uh, we didn't know what to do with all that land, which was a bit uh, too much to plant flowers and vegetable garden. And so we decided to establish a vineyard. 
what a good idea. And many of us enjoyed the Pinot Gris that you ended up exporting it um, to Australia, to China. I didn't know that. And uh, you had such, you know, marketing management. Off you went. and <laughs> I went, yes, yes, without knowing anything about marketing. But uh, a lot of things are quite natural, quite... Uh, Provided that you don't have uh, big expectations, you do your research thoroughly, and then you try. Mm. And that's it. <laughs> But at the same time, you were um, setting up a language school, you um, um, Dante, Dante Society, you uh, um, spent a lot of time, you know, and the one thing I remember most and the thing I love in your book and we haven't mentioned the title yet, Tales from the Woods Edge, a memoir by Wilma Gudiani-Laren. Um, there's the, that cover, that beautiful cover. But This we is see a that photo yes. that I took um, several times ago because the valley where our vineyard and winery was is at the end of the valley's kind of fingers into the um, port hills. And after uh, a rain, you could see those low clouds dancing around. Yes. It was very suggestive. And so I thought it was a good uh, That's a good right. Thought. It's a beautiful photo. And um, you, what you've done in this memoir that I loved, that you've always you. connected your life in Italy with what you were doing in, in uh, Aotearoa. You were doing things and you would think... Gosh, I'm thinking of something at home in Italy. Because, you see, Ruth, the best point of writing a memoir as opposed to a uh, biography is that uh, you don't have to follow one uh, timeline. No, no. You do really what you want. That's what I, I was very concerned at the beginning because basically there are two timelines, the present in New Zealand and the memoirs of the past in Italy. But then everything got confused and mixed up <laughs> and I was happy with that. Well, uh, at the same time, you were teaching um, music, music students at University of Canterbury, Italian, uh, Italian diction and um, and some, a bit of a grammar, I guess, that came into that. But you also, um, was a huge commitment as well as the wine, you were doing all these things and looking at cultural differences and um, it was a huge commitment that you made because we're going to talk about the radio soon. And um, you, were, you were so busy. I hadn't realised quite how busy you were till I read this book. And you and ended up by having a civil knighthood from the Italian government. I hadn't known that. Yes, yes. What, what an honour. It was. And I was uh, really surprised because I didn't think I was doing anything special. But uh, I think everyone uh, who immigrates into another country is a bit uh, of an ambassador for their country of origin. So you are uh, moved to do things. For instance, I did a lot of cooking, teaching at evening classes. That's right, yes. Doing a TV radio program yes. with Canterbury TV and the, the Polytechnic. And uh, frankly, uh, we found New Zealand and New Zealanders so welcoming. So it was a, such a positive experience for us. Were you surprised that New Zealanders loved Italy so much? And I didn't know. No. I didn't know. 
I know people go to Italy for yes. holidays, but I didn't expect uh, this relationship, this love affair with Italy. And I discovered uh, through the interviews that I did uh, for Radio Cartolina here at Plains FM, how deep uh, this relationship went, uh, starting with the Maori battalion in Italy during World War II, and uh, uh, some of the people who went uh, uh, Maori and uh, non-Mahori, who went um, to war in Italy, came back with Italian wives, the war brides. Yes. And then they went back to, to the country to visit their family and their children are going back to rediscover their roots. And so it's a continuous... It's mm. grown. And I had no idea of that. And it was really a pleasant surprise. So in 1998, in October, Women on Air put on an evening for Frances Mays with her book Under the Sun, Tuscan Sun that everybody was reading. And at the end of her talk, I don't know who was supposed to say thank you, but you beat them to it. <laughs> <laughs> and you were on the stage and I thought, who is this woman? <laughs> and you were suddenly speaking to her and thanking her and reading your letter that you had in your bag. <laughs> Uh, so you were well prepared. You intended to do this. And um, and the next day, a phone call from Plains FM uh, th- saying, we'd like to you to run an Italian program on Plains. And that became another huge uh, commitment because um, tell me about how much you enjoyed that. Enormously. Uh, apart from uh, my private life and family and uh, uh, growing vines, radio really has given me a lot. It it makes you very confident, doesn't it, when you're You're always meeting different people. I, I believe you um, rang the chef in Antarctica, who yes. was Italian. <laughs> you got, you were always Look, having... You tell somebody somewhere, I've interviewed them. Yes, you Whenever did. I talk with some people, do you know the... Oh, yes, of course I do. <laughs> I've interviewed them. Well, yes. And how long did you do that for? For 19 years. Yes. I didn't quite make the 20, but no, uh, that was right. it. We were leaving Christchurch, <laughs> so I couldn't do that anymore. No. And it was really amazing, Ruth, because everyone has a story. Yes. And provided you give them a bit of space and ask a couple of questions, they are only too happy and to the time offload That's right. <laughs> their experiences. So uh, Craycroft Chase was well known locally and uh, in other in Australia and China for your Pinot Gris, and uh, I hadn't even heard of Pinot Gris when you started making it. When we started, indeed, we were a kind of uh, pioneers, but then it uh, really took over. Every restaurant or cafe had the Pinot Gris, so that helped as well. So it was very positive. I still wish it was there. <laughs> I did like your um, bottles of that that we were able to buy from you. And so um, New Zealand and Italian story brought together in this book, which has done so beautifully, and it's full of delightful stories. I could go on, on much, much longer if I had the time. Unfortunately, we don't. don't but Can I, Ruth, uh, just uh, say one thing, that uh, whoever of uh, our listeners in this moment uh, is interested in getting in touch uh, with me, 
either uh, to get some copy of the book, which is also in Amazon and is also distributed nationwide. Um, please do three, uh, through uh, the Facebook page, Wilma's Tales. If, especially if you have book clubs, get in touch with me. Wilma's, Wilma's Tales on Tales. Facebook. So, Tales from the Woods Each, a memoir by Wilma Giordani Dano Darren. Um, is a delight, and uh, it's it's just little, smaller chapters, but little touches right through the book that brought memories back for me when you were here, and uh, we've missed you. We've oh, missed thank you. you very so much. So the memoir will be one of my favourite books now. To it's a dip into book too. This little you can just read a little snippet. You know, before you go to sleep at night, you don't have to read the whole book at once. And it's also lifestyle. It's a summer book. It's a summer book, (laughs) indeed. And I hope everyone can enjoy it. So thank you so much, Wilma. It's been a delight to meet you up with you again. Thank you, Ruth. Bye, everyone. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. 100 Havens, The Settlement of the Marlborough Sounds has been written by Wellington historian, editor and writer Helen Beaglehole. Helen's had many years sailing and exploring in the Marlborough Sounds and she's written books for children and adults over the many years. Helen, it seems significant that this book was written by somebody who has a deep love for and knowledge of the area. Um, I, well, you say significant. I just feel I was extraordinarily lucky. Um, it was somebody else's. I didn't have the wit to think of it myself, although I had long time been thinking of another sort of book. Um, but of course, as soon as I started to explore the topic, which I did through going into that extraordinary resource that we have, Papers Past, um, the digitization of the country's newspapers. And on the first instance in calling up Marlborough Sounds and over 11,000 entries came up. <laughs> uh, and that was before I even began to get onto um, the, you know, the names of the individual bays. So there was an, um, an extraordinary wealth of material and range of, of the, um, the topics covered within that area. And, and it was it was an extraordinary resource, and it you know it was it is and was such an exciting history. Well, I'm very impressed with how you've marshaled all those facts and stories into a very readable and informative book. How did you go about that? You know, deciding how to structure it. Um, the the structure as soon as I got onto the um, well, because I should say first of all um, that there, it is actually a, you know the, the the hundred havens it's a very ironic title um, and the only people who can have really found it a haven were Maori pre um, pre European contact um, after that. Um, settlers coming, the Maori being relegated to terrible lands, the hunt and, and the settlers, the European settlers, finding out about the realities of settlement. The title becomes very ironic. But thinking about the Maori and their history, it became immediately obvious to me that I had to, to tell two different stories. And um, I... Th- 
I've also felt that I had to to write the story thematically because otherwise you could just get lost in a welter of time and dates and trying to pull those all together into one narrative would become, or into one chapter uh, over that elapsed over time rather than was about a subject would become very confusing and bitsy. Yes, indeed. Um, at one stage earlier on in the book, you say, uh, you talk about the optimism that seems to have been essential to settlement in the Sounds. We're talking, obviously, about European settlement in the yeah, Sounds because, yeah. as you say, Māori were living, well, not always happily because there were raids and feuds. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. But they were living well on on what was provided there and um, didn't come in thinking that they were going to suddenly have, as the Europeans did, come in and think that this was a, a wonderful opportunity for fishing, for, for timber felling, for farming, for whaling, um, all the things that have... For gold mining. Yeah, gold, gold mining, mining all the things. Yes, doesn't yes. it? All the things that people thought were going to provide them with health and wealth. Yeah. Well, certainly, I mean, Kings, um, I mean, the, the, the diaries of the um, logs of the Cook's men syndicate that they saw there a very, very healthy Maori population, um, although their lives were relatively short. Um, but I, I mean, the optimism was so apparent from the start. Um, it was very, very obvious in all of the newspaper entries. And I, you began to realize, of course, that it was a prerequisite for, um, for, you know, for drawing in settlers. The country needed settlers. They needed settlement. And the more settlers you had, the more facilities you were going to be able to afford and provide. Um, so that that was, um, was really, really important. But I do think um, when... Uh, I, there's one young woman writing from Taranaki, and she says the sea is the, the forest is behind us, the sea in front. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to have arrived uh, in this deeply forested land, um, and and often very steep. Often the sections that people would have bought. Um, were unsuited to farming, and here they were being expected to make an, um, a go of it. You, I mean, the extraordinary strength of mind and optimism that this was going to work, that it was going to be something for, that you could do. I mean, it's it's almost unimaginable, actually. Yes, some of the settlers went from one thing to the other without necessarily learning from that experience. Well, I mean, um, Harold Beecham's father was yes. one. Um, a- absolutely. There's the, the lovely story of the... Um, God, his name's gone totally out of my head. But um, the, the man who ran, eventually ended up running the one of the mail launches who was who had a very, very check. He and his brother had a very, very checkered career. And then they got into... Um, in, into running the um, a, a herring factory in Picton, and then there was a lapse in that, and they were taking people down to the gold fields in the lower part of Marlborough. Gold, gold, gold. Their advertisements for passage ran, and then they came back to um, the herring venture failed completely. 
and then they came back and they were running the mailboats. So just one thing after another, this, the constant energy needed for this reinvention must have been amazing. Yes, as well as telling the Māori story, which you do very well, and we need to know it, um, you also focus quite a bit on what the experience for women was like. Yes, um, I was very lucky. I'm very lucky in some of the people to whom I was able to talk. And Nola um, Leo, whose family grew, um, whose family farmed at Tikawaka in the Marlborough Sounds, it's one of the few remaining farms still being farmed by her brother. Um, So she was able to alert me to some of this through her own family history. Uh, Extraordinarily isolated. giving birth um, there's a letter that talks about uh, one of the women having had a very bad time recently and you just shudder childbirth clearly you shudder to think what that must have meant Um, and of course the men the women were left looking after hordes of children or or the children while the men who were working equally hard but they were the ones who went off to French Pass to go and work on contracts to other people with other workers. So they actually had a social life that was denied the women. Yes, there's a, there's a wonderful piece in there by somebody who, um, one of the women, when, a, when finally a, um, a road is, is constructed, where she, where she talks about the utter independence and freedom of being able to go somewhere on her own because a lot of women freedom and independence total independence if I need to go somewhere I can get in the car and go Uh, because they relied on men so much to um, run the boats didn't they yeah and, and she said that this was Joy Redwood living in Titarangi Bay. Um, her f- uh, husband was running um, in Israel. Still, they're still involved in the family property that was there from very early on indeed. Um, but yes, the, uh, and they, she, Joy talked about this business of relying on the men, but the boats are heavy. And you needed men to be able, you know, you needed help with getting them launched and getting them down. And um, so, yes, it was a difficult thing. Of course, um, and she, the, the, she was talking about when the road, um, in fact, which came down part, um, very much because of the local initiatives that had brought it out from Kinaparu Heads out towards that area. And then her husband was involved in surveying and, um, and actually helping create the road. Um, that is now looked after the Marlborough Council. But the other thing that I think, um, that was in the 1970s. Um, Earlier, there had been the tracks built by government um, on this extraordinary provision um, provision of amenities for settlers in isolated areas. And tracks initially four feet wide in the solid, meaning they had to be solid ground underneath them, were built round these enormously long indented bays. Uh, and, and again, that was fantastic facility for the women um, for, for, um, yeah, and to be able to get out, to be able to visit neighbours easily. It's, it's an extra, yeah. It's a, it's a story of, as you say, extraordinary 
resilience on everybody's part because we all know, those of us who are familiar with suns, how erratic the weather can be, how terrible the winds can be. They can just just wreck any plans. Um, They can come out of nowhere. Um, And so you have to, and when the sounds are, when they're still and calm and the sun is shining, there is nowhere better. But boy, they can they can upset, well, everything really, can't they? Oh, they can. I mean, we were sailing once uh, and there was light, light winds. We had a big Genoa out the full main, the dinghy trailing behind, and suddenly there was this fantastic, um, fairly prolonged gust of... Um, over 40, 40 knots, which is 80k plus, uh, and um, the, the dinghy just tripped over and decided to be a submarine, and the sails needed shortening, <laughs> and which did you rescue first? Um, thank goodness the wind eventually just dried, and we were able to right ourselves and get the dinghy on board. But, but no, it, it, it was an extraordinarily difficult world, and for Māori, well into the 20th century, who did not have the um, the money to buy the launches, um, it would be two to three days row down towards into Havelock, where they would need to go for adequate, any adequate, or halfway to adequate medical assistance. But you know, having and and so the sounds in many ways, I think, um, they're. Their development was in a way hampered, or their government assistance. Um, there was this notion, rather, I should say, the sounds had these long roads of water, and so it would always be simple and easy. And it took a long time for people to realise that the weather meant that you know didn't mean that it was always easy to go by boat. One of the really interesting, you know, technology I think came to the settlers' um, settlers' rescue in the shape of these oil launches that arrived and took the country as well as the sounds by storm in 1902, right at the beginning of the 19th, 20th century, um, and so they finally had um, a launch that, you know, and a way of moving against the wind uh, and a bigger boat. Thank you very much. I think this is is a wonderful book. It's a, it's going to be a huge uh, asset to to people who know and love the sounds, but um, just to the record for New Zealand, I think. So. Oh, I think so. Yes, yes. I mean, it, it is in many ways. It's it's an, an, a settler narrative, but set in this extraordinary setting. Thank you. One Hundred Havens, The Settlement of the Marlborough Sounds, is written by Helen Beaglehole and published by Massey University Press. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.